0: Welcome to the sermon podcast of Faith Lutheran Church in Oregon, Wisconsin. Proclaiming the historic faith of Christ crucified and the promises of God that our faith clings to. For more information, visit us online at faithlutheranoregon.com. We got a pamphlet in the mail a couple of weeks ago from a, um, a larger church in Madison. I won't tell you which one. If you've got the pamphlet too, you'll you'll know which one I'm talking about. Uh, It claimed to be a Christian church. It claimed actually to be a Lutheran church. Uh, Their slogan was, Church on Your Terms. And actually, I think there's a hashtag, hashtag Church on Your Terms. And over and over again, uh, the pamphlet said, we're open. We're open. We're so open. We're open about everything. Uh, And then it listed... And then it listed everything they were open about, Uh, marriage, sexuality, sexual identity, style of worship, even religion. Uh, They were explicit in that they were open to Jews, to Muslims, to Hindus. Ironically, the one group they didn't mention they were open to was Christians. Oh, and and the tiny little print on the pamphlets implied that they'd kick you out if you weren't wearing a mask. So they weren't actually open to, to everything. As we heard last week, just because you claim the name of a church or just because you you claim the name Christian doesn't mean you are one. I recently uh, saw an individual online who who had been a member of one of our sister churches uh, somewhere else in the country, uh, and they made a fairly loud fuss online uh, over leaving that church and finding a new one because they said they wanted a church that didn't make them change. I bring these two examples up of wanting church your way because it can sound nice. Uh, it can sound even pious, right? Be all things to all people. To be open, to be welcoming. Uh, but that's just the surface, surface issue. Really at heart is wanting God your way. And I hate to break it to you, but this is not the Christian faith. It means you are putting yourself above God. And that's a first commandment issue. And this is an issue that, it's not just those two examples I gave, but this is an issue that you and I struggle with, likely every day. This is the same issue that the man in our gospel lesson, a royal official, a a nobleman whose uh, son is is on the verge of death, (laughs) It's the same issue he has. He has this issue of wanting God his way. And to know this really makes Jesus' response make sense. Jesus told him, unless you people see miraculous signs and wonders, you certainly will not believe. Jesus rebukes him. It sounds harsh to our ears. I mean, the man's not asking for a pack of smokes or a bunch of money, or something to drink when he's already drunk, or a handout. Uh, This man is not asking for anything that we wouldn't ask. His son is on the verge of death. He's suffering and looking for help. And by the way, he's come about 25 miles from Capernaum to Jesus in Cana. That's about a two-day trip on foot. But we need to pay attention to the words, to the terms that are recorded. Because just because he does those things doesn't make it right, doesn't make it good. And if you listen closely, you hear that this man has another God. He wants God on his terms. Now, this man very well may believe that Jesus is God, uh, that Jesus has power as God to heal his son, to heal diseases, to cure diseases, and certainly he knows that Jesus exists because of what he's served, because he's come to him. But knowing God exists is not the same thing as having trust, having faith in God. Knowing God exists is not the same thing as having trust or faith in God. Wanting God to, to heal your son or, or to, to do anything for you is not necessarily the same thing as trust in God. Now, there's one thing we notice about this nobleman. He begged Jesus to come down and heal his son. He required Jesus to be physically present in order to heal his son. I mean, after all, he's a royal official. Uh, his son's important. Jesus should come right now. This guy's used to, to people listening to him. Now, there's a similar story in Matthew's gospel about a Roman centurion uh, who, who has a sick servant. And he comes to Jesus and begs Jesus to heal his servant. But the two men are vastly different. Because the centurion, when Jesus offered to come and, and help, come to his house and heal his servant, the man expressed faith that didn't, Jesus didn't need to do so. He said, Lord, I am not worthy that you should come under my roof, but only speak a word and my servant will be healed. But, but for this nobleman, this is a first commandment issue. What's the first commandment? You shall have no other gods. What does this mean? We should fear, love, and trust in God above all things. So who is this man's God? He hasn't made an idol out of wood or stone. His God is his child. That which you fear, love, or trust more than God. That which you think you cannot live without, that which you love above God, that becomes an idol. Our God is a jealous God. He will not share you. He will not share you even with your own children. You are his. This man came to Cana seeking a healer. Not God. He had a God back home. Now, to be clear, he did love a good thing, right? His son, that's a great thing to love. It's not wrong, it's not sinful to love your children. That's what you should do. But he loved it disproportionately. He loved his son as though his son were the only thing in this life that mattered. As though death were the worst thing that could possibly happen. As though Jesus did not come to die and transform death into into, into a passage to eternal life for him and his son. His faith was not trust in God for all things, including eternity. But he demanded that God share the place of love and trust with his Son. Now, this is probably the most difficult trial a Christian could ever face. And so Jesus' rebuke of this man speaks even to us, even to me. What if that were me? I would probably do the same thing. You know, I have expectations and hopes for, for things I'll do with my children someday. I'd love to take them places and, and have adventures with them, make sure they're, they're well educated, uh, have them go to Bethany Lutheran College, uh, have them have a, have a Christian spouse and children. You know, I got this, this checklist. But what if God should take them before me? The real question for for all fathers is not, will my children live for this moment? Will they be smart? Will they be good baseball players? Will they give me grandchildren? Or will they outlive me? But the question is, will my children live forever? What are our prayers like? Most of the time we don't think of God, except if we have some immediate need. That's when we believe in God. That's when we pray to God. And we say, God, if you're powerful listening, uh, please do this, this one thing. And how generous we are then to to give God an opportunity to show uh, that he actually exists. Uh, How considerate of us to to open a reasonable and rational mind just a little bit uh, to allow God to help us out just this once. Or how do we spend our time? Especially on this, the Lord's Day the first day of every week, that God has asked us to set aside for him. What sort of things am I demanding that God share? And even in coming here, am I trying uh, trying to bend God to my will? I'm so generous in giving God this time, God should do what I want. Hashtag God on my terms. Jesus sends this man away, and our English translation actually softens it. It makes it a future tense. It says, go, uh, Jesus told him, your son is going to live. But in Greek, that's a present tense verb. Go, your son lives. Go, your son lives. It's ambiguous. Jesus sends him away without actually telling the man, uh, anything, without actually telling the man he's going to, to do anything or has done anything. Uh, Jesus could have been crystal clear. He, he, he could have spoke in the future tense, your son will live, uh, and even added maybe an amen, amen, I tell you, uh, your son is going to live, but he doesn't. Jesus only sends, says your son lives. The man already knew that. Jesus wants this man to live by faith. Faith is not living by what you can see or experience. It's not the expectation that God fills your bucket list. Faith is trust that God is good, even if every check is left undone. Faith is trust that God loves you and your children more than anything. And because of that, we'll work all things together for your good. Faith is trust that Jesus did not die in vain but died to overcome death even for you and your children. Faith is trust that death is not the worst thing that could happen. Faith is trust that death is simply a doorway to eternal life. Gerhardt says that if you love your, your children, your family dearly in this life, you'll love them and receive them even more dearly in the one to come. When Jesus told the man, Go, your son lives, it's almost as Jesus is saying, Go to your son while he's still alive. And you better hurry up the 25 miles back to Capernaum. Jesus is calling this man to faith. This man had come with another God, he had come himself dead. Now, if he had gotten what he would asked for, if he had gotten his way, he would have returned dead. Even if he was able to spend a couple of more months or years with the son and check things off his list. Eventually, they both would still be dead. But amazingly, this man goes back believing. He goes back trusting God's terms. Jesus' words. It says, already as he was going down, his servants met him with the news that his boy was going to live. So he asked them what time the son got better. And they told him, yesterday, the seventh hour, the fever left him. And the father realized that was the exact time when Jesus had told him, your son lives. And he himself and his whole household believed. Jesus didn't do what this nobleman, this royal official, asked. He didn't go physically to the child He simply spoke. He stated a fact. He set his own terms. Your son lives. The boy lives. But when Jesus merely speaks just a word, that is the truest and most powerful thing in all the world. It is renewing and recreating. It is life-giving. With just a word, the boy lives and the father lives. Doesn't Jesus make the same promise today at any Christian funeral? Your son, or daughter, or husband, or wife, lives. Present tense. They are alive. Jesus doesn't speak like we do. You know, we talk about people who, who were alive. They were a good person, they were were alive. But at Christian funerals, we use words from Jesus and declare that people are alive. God's word is always present tense for us. God's word is our sword that allows us to fight off the struggle of our flesh right now. The schemes of the devil, the temptation, to despair when things don't go our way. God's word allows us to stand even in an evil day, when things do not go at all like we had planned, even when death should come close to us, when, things, uh, when, when, the, when the flames of the devil are hurling at us to despair. But still we can stand, present tense, and we can return home like the nobleman because we have God's word for the present. It might not be our terms, but God's are far better. We live even if we die. I shall not die but live, the psalmist says. I'd like to close by drawing your attention to the hymn that we've been singing. So open up your hymnal again. Tim five hundred and seventeen. This is a hymn about losing everything. It's a hymn about losing everything but gaining so much more. And you can sing it when you're in the throes of despair. It's even got a minor melody, which is always a great thing to, to, to well, it, it, it fits your mood when things aren't going your way. Uh, and it's a hymn uh, that, that takes imagery from uh, Romans 8 especially. Uh, It's a hymn that you really can't shorten, uh, because there's so much that God gives. And you have to read it multiple times. And I know we're just singing it once today. Uh, And so when you go home, use your hymn at home, open your hymn at home, and read the hymn again. And then do the same thing again tomorrow. And then Tuesday, and Wednesday, and Thursday, and so on. That's what good hymnody should do. You should be able to contemplate. You should be able to read it over and over and learn new things, gain new insights, and be edified again and again. You should be able to contemplate it. You should be be able to turn it over in your mind because if you don't have good things to contemplate like this, we all know how easy it is to contemplate evil things and to begin to think that we know better than God. But as the hymn says... God is for us. If God himself be for me, he's never against us. Even, uh, and especially, when evil things happen, God is for us. Even if God seems harsh with us, God is for us. Just as he was with this man and for this man. He's always for us. I've heard people describe their feelings after the death of a loved one, and they describe it like the sun has gone away. Or rather, that the sun, they'd rather the sun, the sun go away and they have their loved one back. But Gerhard in this hymn uh, compares Jesus to the sun. He did that in one of the first verses. And now let me read for you this, this, last, uh, this last verse. After losing everything, after a thousand plagues, not just one, after losing family, friends, life, and limb, the author says this My merry heart is springing and knows not how to pine. Tis full of joy and singing and radiancy divine. The sun whose smiles so cheer me is Jesus Christ alone. To have him always near me is heaven itself begun. To have Jesus, to have Jesus' word, even when death, when the world is dark, is to have the sun brightly shining. To have that, even in a life full of death, is heaven itself already begun. Christ has given you his word. He is always with you. He has you on his terms. In Jesus' name.